Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 82 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. Wally Balls. And I'm joined here by my immaculate co-host, former market maker of 20 years and current day retail trader, a man you'll be seeing dollar sign spots if you stare at him too long, (laughs) the man who took his talents across the pond. JJ, how's it going, man? Good, brother. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great, man. How, how are you enjoying London? All settled in? Oh, I love it here. And you know, it, it's been sunny for two weeks, so I don't know what everyone's complaining about. The weather's great. Uh, yeah, I think anything will probably beat uh, Saskatchewan. Yeah, anything beats the middle of Canada, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And our guest today was a former head of fixed income portfolio management at ING. Deutschland. That's a $20 billion investment portfolio. Now he's the author of the Macro Compass, a free financial newsletter providing actionable investment ideas and unique global macro insights. I'm talking about Alfonso Pecatello. Alf, how's it going? Did I say it right? Almost there, Ray. Almost there. But I appreciate the effort. It's a difficult surname. Uh, well, you know, Alf, they're going to revoke my uh, my Italian card. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Italian-American, so I, I don't know if I get a pass there. No, you're not justified then. I'm, going to <laughs> I'm not justified. Oh, man, that that, that hurts. You know, cause, you know, Alf, I've, I've, we've had, you know, I always just, you know, display my love and, and joke about uh, being Italian. Um, I don't know. I guess it's a, you know, pride thing. We've had a bunch of Italians on, but always Italian-Americans. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to ask you, I'm just curious of uh, Italians' perceptions or stereotypes on Italian-Americans. So you need to know as well, I'm not fully Italian. I am Italian, Southern Italian. This is joking. So I'm definitely <laughs> Italian. <laughs> That's where my family uh, originates too. <laughs> so I'm originally from a place close to the Amalfi Coast, okay. um, where it's so beautiful and sunshine and great weather and great food. But then you quickly find out youth unemployment rate is 40%. Because after you graduate, there is not much to be done, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And then I moved uh, all the way to north of Europe to actually find employment and uh, start my career. But when it comes to Italian Americans, um, you know, we have this weird feeling because most of people in the south of Italy, for example, they have never been in America. Mm-hmm. So they they maybe had grandfathers or grandmothers or grand grandfathers or grand grandmothers that emigrated. Um, not all of them have come back, so they have this, you know, this sympathy. I guess, this empathy and sympathy towards Italian-Americans, but they've never experienced firsthand how it is to deal with an Italian-American in most cases, right? So it all comes from movies or perception, really. So, Mm -hmm. for instance, um, you know, we know that some of the food tradition got mixed up between Southern Italy and Italian-Americans. So the way, you know, pizza is done, for example, is very different or can be very different from Southern Italy and and, uh, Italian-Americans. So we have this strange feeling of, okay, these guys, you know, very close to us, they emigrated, uh, you know, whatever, decades ago there, but then somehow they got, you know, mixed up with the American culture. We still, we still sympathize for them, but those are like strange objects. We don't know how to treat them exactly. (laughs) It's a fun thing, you know? Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. You know, I I was thinking I would, I would imagine probably a lot of it from, uh, you know, like pop culture movies or like TV shows. And I know that was like, Alf, that was like a big thing here. I remember like JJ, when the Sopranos first came out, it was a big deal. It's like, oh, Italians are always portrayed as mobsters or, you know, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, and it's funny because I grew up in Saskatchewan in Canada and all the Italians that lived in, in my hometown were all university professors. So I grew up thinking all Italians were astrophysicists, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> Well, JJ, I got to tell you that we have a pretty strong presence in universities, I think, and in research mm-hmm. in general. Also, Definitely. if you look at investment banks, I mean, yes. almost every investment bank I talked to when I was in my previous role had uh, a senior Italian in the research team. I mean, it's almost like a must uh, at some point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, despite that, most of the, how can I say, stereotypes I get when I go abroad are, 
for people looking at me the <laughs> and symbol, or they ask me if I have connection with mafia. So, you know, it's, uh, I'm pretty used to it by now, oh, good yeah. Yeah. which I do, by the way, which I do. Which <laughs> Just in right. case. And we're not, Nobody we're not, with yeah, we're not messing with Alf. Yeah, no, I love, yeah. I love the animation. I love the passion. I, I love the, the emotion, um, you know, of Italians. Um, and lastly, not, not that this is an Italian podcast, but you know, I one more question. What's the best things Italians have brought to the world? Is it espresso? I think, yep. I saw it. I, for people who, I don't know whether this is going to be only uh, audio or also video, but I'm drinking my espresso here. No, I would say, um, rates, uh, if I have to find the best connotation of Italians and the common denominator, it's, uh, empathy. Mm. And so when you, when you move, for instance, from the south of Europe, or south of Italy in my case, to the north of Europe, you find that sometimes this natural, sometimes even stressed empathy that we have um, in the south of Italy, it's very difficult to replicate and sometimes you tend to miss it. So generally, you know, people from the south of Europe, south of Italy in this case specifically, are very uh, empathic about other people. They are truly trying to help it comes from, uh, you know, very humble roots and a very agricultural based economy up until probably 20 to 30 years ago only. That was the case. And so we used to really try and help each other and um, have a very human feeling towards each other. And I think that's, a, that's something I really like about my culture. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think I could even say the same about like, just just my, my family and my, my uh, grandparents, uh, just just the warmth, there, there, there's a warmth to the culture. Um, which which True. I definitely enjoy, which I definitely enjoy. So just a reminder to the listeners, if you like to trade alongside JJ and myself in a supportive community of traders, you can join us at microefutures.com. Alf, um, I want to start at the beginning um, for yourself. Where did your interest in markets come from? So interestingly, it's family rooted as well. Um, my mother is, a, is the treasurer of a small Italian bank, very small, in the south of Italy. And so it's really all about Italian government bonds at the end of the day when it comes to uh, trading and investing in assets from her side. So since I was 14, 15 years old, I'm used to have um, lunch breaks from school and having this BTP future chart open in front of me. So BTP is, the, is basically the Italian government bond and there is a future underlying. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm used to see this chart since I, I'm 14 uh, while I have lunch breaks with my mom because she's also having a lunch break, but she has to look at markets. And so I, I became passionate about that and I started asking questions, you know, the typical adolescence curiosity sort of period. And I became quite fascinated about it. And so my mother is also a very typical passionate um, woman from the south of Italy. So she really likes her job and to teach and describe, which got me even more interested into that. So that's where it all started. And then I started reading myself and started to open your first brokerage account and you know, start to lose some money here and there, <laughs> get yourself all, um, you know, into the weeds of how it works, then finally going to university, studying the topic a bit more formally, and then end, end, ending up in industry. Yeah, nice, nice. And so, so how did you wind up? So you said you moved to, to Northern Europe. So you, when yeah. you graduated from university and you went there first, like how did you wind up at uh, ING? So basically, uh, the university had a program. So the Italian university where I studied had a program that if you were like amongst the top students, they would send you for um, a double degree program to a German university. I ended up there. Um, and so I, I experienced a bit the German teaching method, which was way different than the Italian. The Italian was very uh, theory first, application maybe if we ever do that later, the German approach is very different, was actually practice first and uh, theory after. And so that was a nice combination. In the end, um, ING, uh, this, this Dutch headquartered bank, was expanding their business in Germany aggressively back then. We're talking 2013, 2014. And so basically I was there at this German university um, meeting ING people. They were trying to hire effectively young students. So I, I joined there um, and I decided to start working there also because when every time I, I came back to my hometown visiting family, I, I quickly realized, as I said before, that the job opportunities in the south of Italy were not plenty nor looking very good. And so I didn't have much of a, of a choice then to start my career in the north of Europe, which, by the way, then led me to some interesting experiences. So I definitely don't regret that part. Mm -hmm. 
Awesome. You know, you know, Alf, you're a, you're a young guy. I mean, you, you came to manage 20 billion dollars. Uh, I mean, it's very impressive. And, uh, you know, it made me a little bit depressed, quite frankly, when I found out we were around the same age. I'm like, oh, man, what am I doing? You know, but no, um, you know, it's a, that's, that's incredible, man. Like, how how did you enjoy managing that much money? Did there come some pressure with it or, yes. you know? Yes. So obviously, people ask me frequently, how did I manage to get to that level in my career that quick? Mm-hmm. It's always a combination of luck and skills. And luck is very important in such a fast career track because effectively you need to be, well, hardworking for sure and intelligent and curious, but also lucky to have um, senior management that believes in you and a mentor that is able also to guide you towards the, uh, the soft skills required. I mean, managing the portfolio, obviously it's about risk and returns, but it's also about um, stakeholder management, being able to talk to your finance department, to your risk department, being, being a good communicator. And all these skills, actually, you need somebody who's willing to teach you and you need a good mentor as well, which at the end of the day, it's luck, to be honest, <laughs> a decent component, being at the right time, um, at the right place. And so it actually, uh, I, I mean, after I think four years of portfolio management, I got promoted to this large managerial role, important one, uh, of running a $20 billion book. And obviously, when I was 28, that was a very mixed experience because it's a lot of responsibility all at once. Um, At the same time, you feel that you have some skills required to achieve the job, which then turned out to be pretty much fine. But the amount of pressure you have to withstand and also the decision-making you'll have to take outside taking risks on a portfolio, which the only thing that changes really is the size, maybe the the mandate of the portfolio and the risk management around it. But you can always figure those out on a spreadsheet, let's say somehow. And then you start understanding market liquidity when you trade a bit larger sizes, et cetera, et cetera. But what's more difficult to to get yourself immediately acquainted with is all the, um, uh, well, stakeholder management, communication skills you have to, you know, um, stand up for and managing a team and all these things are obviously a new and scary experience. Yeah, sure. So it was maybe some of the stuff outside of actually placing the trades on that was a little bit more challenging. That makes sense. And a lot of people say that, um, you know, that we've talked to managing a lot of money. Um, Alf, so so the average listener um, is probably like myself, right? A retail trader with mostly, you know, zero to small amounts of macro, uh, you know, economic global understanding. Um, You write about this stuff. You're very respected. you know, in that arena, what would be your advice to someone like myself or, or the listener who wants to attempt and to, you know, broadening their uh, macro understanding? So, Ray, I have to say that when people ask me this question, it's difficult to, to reply in a concise way. Mm-hmm. There is so much free information today or potentially free that it's difficult to find a place where to start. And it's actually a project of mine to become an aggregator of good macroeconomic information all in one place later on in the future, not only by myself, but getting help from other like-minded, data-backed, good macro people out there. If I need to answer your question now, I would say that there are um, three or four books that I would always suggest people to start reading. And those books, Ray, are, let's say, the very foundation of our monetary system first. They explain that first. And I always want to start from the monetary system because if you don't understand how money works, then you'll have a hard time connecting the macro dots required to make informed investment decisions. And so those books, let's cut to the chase, otherwise people will get bored soon, are, um, uh, well, I would say the first one you should read is from Cullen Roche. Cullen is also uh, pretty active on Twitter as a fan now. And it's called The Pragmatic Capitalist, I think, or Pragmatic Capitalism, one of the two names. I, I'm, I'm very bad with titles. So, sorry. So, and as you can see, I didn't prepare for this answer. Um, it's a very short book, probably 100 pages, 120 pages. It explains how money works and which different type of money you have out there. You have money you can literally spend in the real economy, and you have another tier of money, Ray, that you can't spend in the real economy, and that people really like to talk about, and that's the money created by QE, so that's bank reserves. Mm. So it tends to it goes there and explains to you 
which metrics do you need to track to understand how much money is in the system, spendable money, and how much inert forms of money are in the system. So you start learning about these different, let's call them tier of moneyness. This is very important because then when a central bank announces QE, your brain goes like, ah, but that's a form of money that cannot get out into the real economy, but that's something else. So I need to focus on that. And when a government goes and like, okay, I'm going to send checks to Ray, to JJ and Alf, ah, that's a different sort of money. That one I can spend in the real economy. And then you start, you know, your brain also moves, start to think differently. The other book I would suggest is from Richard Koo, um, which is called The Holy Grail of Macroeconomics. And Richard also wrote a book about balance sheet recessions in Japan. And those are two important books. First, because, you know, the balance sheet recession in Japan basically explains how Japan created a credit bubble and how the credit bubble deflated. And the model of expanding credit to basically have this wealth effect through the private person is what we are doing as well now in Europe, in the US, actually everywhere in the world, because it's an easy way to, to, to make, basically give more net spend sector. Politicians like that because people will feel much more wealthy if they have access to cheap credit, right? And he mm -hmm. explains how that worked in Japan and then how that actually uh, deflated and why. And Holy Grail of Macroeconomics is rather a very broad-based macro book that also helps you connecting the dots. I think if you start from these three books, there are a few more. We can maybe drop them in the comments later or I can send you some more reference. Awesome. You don't need um, much more than that as a start. But after that, Ray, what you need is really to build your own uh, framework. And when you do that, you need to make sure that you allow for mistakes and adjustments. That's another typical um, fallback I see from, from people approaching global macro is that you basically set in stone one work and they can't get around that. It's just in reality. This is a very complex system where you. Hey, hey, Alfie, your, your mic, your mic's, uh, your mic went off. Can you hear me? Yep, yep, hear you now. Yep. Go oh, sorry. So I just said that this, the, basically your uh, macro framework should be adjustable to new incoming data. And I see a lot of people that have a very fixed, non-adjustable macro framework, which in my experience over time tends not to prove the correct way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You got to leave some, uh, yeah, some adjustment in the model in the system. Um, Alf, um, you, you mentioned when you went to university. Um, uh, the differences between, uh, you know, maybe like the Italian was more like theoretical mm -hmm. when you went um, to Germany, a little bit more practical first than theoretical. How do you think that plays out like uh, th uh, th theory, um, global macroeconomics and in practice? And like, how do you toe that line between practice and theory? Well, I think it was a, I was very lucky again to have the combination of the two uh, different teaching methods. Um, in principle, again, I would suggest um, to really have a good understanding of theory. It's very important because it gives you the foundation to be able to apply your principles. But at the same time, it's paramount important to make sure you're applying your principles. And sometimes in Italy, we forget that. So we become extremely good at theory and stochastic equations if it's finance, but then ultimately we don't know how to apply them in a, in a concrete case study. And so, uh, yeah, I would just go about what I just said, I mean, make sure that you have a very strong uh, theoretical foundation, but as well, you're able to apply that in real life. But if you're a student as well, to make sure that what you're studying is applicable, that you're going to really make use of what you're studying, because there is, I think, in the university teaching modules, a lot of non-practical, non-applicable material that people are, are thrown to when, yeah, it's just not a great use of time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever, you know, cause there's, there's so many moving pieces, um, you know, with, with global, um, you know, picture, do you ever find yourself like overthinking, overanalyzing? I know, I know your experience now, but was this something that, that you maybe uh, experienced at first? Yeah. So at the beginning it was exactly like that, right? So uh, I had something like 200 inputs. I was supposed to look at uh, when it came to global macro. I still have, I think in, in my models, something like 250 inputs today, but there is a big difference because I have three or four key inputs that I tend to look at very often. And the rest are, um, let's say, corroborating evidence or discrediting evidence 
at the same time of those four indicators. That's how I tend to approach at things. And these three, four indicators are what I call my macropolar stars. And why have I decided to attach a certain value to those is because when you take a step back, and this is key because a lot of people get lost in the weeds, but global macro really is mostly about being able to take a step back, look at the big picture and connect the dots. And when you do that, you realize ultimately the drivers you need to pay really attention to are not that many. And in my case, those are the credit impulse, globally speaking. So I created a metric that basically tracks the rate of change of credit creation all over the world. Well, in the five largest economies, there are not data for all countries, but the five largest economies, yes, there are. And the reason why I look at credit so much, raise, I, I always make an example. If you are, if you want to buy a million dollar house and you don't have a million dollar, you literally show up in a bank. And as long as they deem you as credit worthy and look at your underlying potential for cash flows over the next 30 years, and they believe you can pay back this, um, this, this loan, they will literally create money out of thin air and they will credit your bank account. And with this newly created money, you will go and buy a house that you couldn't afford otherwise. Think of how strong and powerful is the process of creating credit. They mm. literally allow you, Ray, or me, or who, anyone else to be able to purchase an asset that otherwise you wouldn't have the wealth to purchase. You still don't have the wealth up front, but you create credit in order to access this ability. And so when credit is created at a very fast pace, actors in the private mar market are able to get this wealth effect on, this spending capacity on that otherwise they wouldn't have. So tracking the rate of change of credit is very important because it tells me if the private sector has more or less resources to literally spend in the real economy. And you realize that this obviously drives GDP growth earnings and ultimately asset class performance. The same when credit impulse slows down, which doesn't mean you are deleveraging necessarily, but it means maybe you're pumping less credit into the system. Then people marginally will, will have less appetite to spend. And that also, of course, drives earnings to go down, et cetera, et cetera. So you always, I always use this metric to understand whether cyclically we are effectively pumping credit or we are pumping credit at a, at a, at a lesser pace than before. And then, you know, there are a few other metrics I look at very constantly. As I said, there are around 250 that, you know, are spit out my model, but there are three or four that I really want to look at as a macro polar star, not to get this overwhelmed feeling you're talking about where you, you have all this data coming at you, but ultimately you, you just tend to move left, right and center without having a big picture view of, of what's going on. Yeah. Right. I have a place like an anchor to like yeah, come back correct. to. Right. Right. Awesome. Um, you know, for, for people who are short time, uh, your uh, short time frame traders, Alf, can understanding of, you know, the macro global picture still be helpful? Yes, I would say so. Obviously that's a different sport. And as a, my mentor used to say, everybody can be right at different time frames. So mm -hmm. uh, right. you know, one can be right or wrong if the time frame of a trade is, is different. Um, nevertheless, I think when um, it can be very useful in, uh, for instance, calibrating the risks you're taking. So if you are, if you're macro, if you're a short-term trader and your macro analysis would tell you that this is going to be a high volatility environment because of, you know, risk premium are widening or whatever your analysis is pointing to, then obviously that can inform as well the amount of risk and the strategy you're going to be using short-term, right? Vice versa, if you are in an environment where volatility is about to come down according to your models and therefore, you know, all these risk parity guys can lever up and can just buy risk out there and can compress volatility, they sell volatility actively, then you as a short-term trader perhaps have also different strategies to implement, right? So I think it, even if it doesn't directly impact your, uh, your decision-making and your strategies, it can inform you at least about... Uh, factors like volatility that can be important when sizing your positions. Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, Alf, I want to ask you about real yields, because uh, I know you say there's nothing more important when it comes to understanding uh, the bond market. So you can just speak to the importance of real yields. Yes. So real yields are often understood, but paramount important in our system. So let's start first from why are they important? They are important because if you are a borrower or an investor, 
let's start from the borrower. If you're a borrower, what you will be looking at is the cost adjusted for inflation you'll have to be facing when servicing your liabilities. That's what you look at ultimately. Even if you don't uh, immediately realize, but that's the considerations you're doing in your head. So again, back to your mortgage. If your mortgage rate is 3% and your inflation expectation for the next five years is going to be 3%, then you basically know that the coupons you're, you're paying on one hand, the nominal coupons, so the 3% interest rate you're paying, will basically somehow be canceled by the fact that inflation will eat away the, the real value of your liabilities over time, right? Because inflation basically goes up 3% a year, and therefore the, the inflation-adjusted value of your notional due, so the mortgage value, will also go down. So you are effectively looking at somehow a 0% implied real mortgage cost in that case. Well, that's very appealing, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, you're borrowing from an inflation-adjusted perspective roundabout at three levels, which will inform your borrowing ability um, in a certain way compared to if your real mortgage rates are 7%. And then you'll have to start thinking about how will my wage develop? Will my real wage also go up in a way I can actually sustain these higher borrowing costs? So the interaction between real yields and real earning capacity of the private sector is an important dynamic when understanding if the private sector can borrow more or less. And borrow more or less, again, comes back to the credit consideration we did before. If the private sector feels it can borrow more, it will lever up more. It will get access to new resources, newly created credit, et cetera, et cetera. The reason why it's often misunderstood is people tend to look at real yields as nominal borrowing costs minus today's inflation, which is obviously wrong because borrowing costs are generally fixed for a period of time, 5, 10, 30 years. And inflation rate, comparing today's inflation rate to a 10-year mortgage rate is just not the right way to do it because inflation obviously will evolve somehow over the next 10 years. So it's important to consider inflation expectations against borrowing rates, which can, which can be fixed. And the other thing people are often not considering when looking at real yields is the fact that the private sector doesn't borrow at risk-free real yields, but it borrows at risk-free real yields plus a credit spread. So what I, what I often say is people obsess about government uh, real yields so it would be treasury tips, for example, inflation protected security yields. Those are real yields that the government of the United States will have to pay when they borrow. But the government is, when they borrow in their domestic currency rate, those are, this is not a, the balance sheet of a government issuing in their own currency doesn't work as my balance sheet because the government is the issuer of the currency. Literally, it's the monopolist of the currency. Right. So ultimately, it can decide just to issue new currency to cover existing liabilities. I can't do that. I can go to my bank and I say, sorry, guys, I lost my job. I can't pay my mortgage. I'm going to issue some ALF coins. <laughs> and so that, that doesn't work. <laughs> and that's why, ultimately, we pay a credit spread over treasury bonds, right? And so real yields, the, the, the backbone of it is risk-free real yields. So treasury tips in this case yields, but the private sector, don't forget, also has to overlay credit spreads on those. So when real yields from a risk-free perspective tend to go up and credit spreads tend to widen at the same time, then the private sector has quite a hard time borrowing and vice versa, when real yields go down and credit spreads tighten, which is basically what happened throughout 2020 and 2021, once we started accommodating monetary policy and the situation improved from an economic perspective as well, real yields actually dropped, but credit spreads also tightened. So the private sector had a great time. They could just borrow at very, very low um, real borrowing costs. That obviously encourages people to lever up and spurs economic activity, right? And vice versa, like now when real yields are slowly going up and credit spreads are beginning to widen, then the private sector is like, whoa, 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 whoa. If I am a junk corporate bond, bond issuer in America and I have a net leverage of seven times, and then I'm looking at refinancing in my company, if before I used to pay a 5% yield, all in yield to borrow, now I'm looking at real yields going up and my credit spreads moving higher, the total borrowing cost has become 8% or 7%. I'm like, wow, my business is not viable at these rates. I'm actually going to start delevering. I'm not going to borrow anymore. And that has a lot of, of course, second round effects as well.
Yeah. Yeah. And, and for, for all the listeners, he writes about all this at the macro compass. Um, I, I wouldn't have been able to wrap my head around that conversation uh, last time without reading uh, your stuff. He's got some great stuff there. And I want to, um, uh, there was something you wrote. Uh, I, I pulled one of the quotes and I, I want to read it to you and just ask you about it. Um, and you, it says, um, our economic system produces poor and poor long-term economic growth due to low population growth and stagnant productivity. And this is socially and politically unacceptable. Hence, we continue to leverage up by creating new money. Um, so this is kind of some of the stuff you, you've talked about. Um, you know, and so this is boosting a, uh, what you call the, the wealth illusion um, effect. What type of effects could this have for us down the road? Yeah, so to sum it up to the audience, basically politicians around the 80s started understanding in developed markets that they needed to lever up the economy to achieve a certain cyclical growth, right? That otherwise was impossible to achieve because the good old demographics boom we had sec- past the Second World War where birth rates went up as people realized that the war was over and economic prospects were improving, that was actually exhausted around the 80s. So the labor force, the, the baby boom we had in the 50s and in the 60s actually entered the labor force all the way through the 70s and the late 80s. But at some point, that boost actually exhausted. And at the same time, the productivity improvement we had from the 40s to the 80s also found some sort of a plateau when the industrialization process was basically over, over was mature, let's say. And so at that point, the long-term drivers of economic growth sort of you know, plateaued at still acceptable levels, but they weren't growing anymore from a rate of change perspective. And so politicians thought, all right, so I'm going to engineer higher growth here. And obviously the, the answer to that was let's extend more credit to the private sector. Let's see if these guys can take more or want more. And also the government start to become a bit more keen to print deficits than they were before, also as the gold standard has gone away. So you literally don't need to have a fixed price at which you convert newly created dollars to gold. You know, it's just a market mechanism, but nobody can just walk in a bank and demand to convert newly created dollar in gold at a fixed price. That's not the case anymore, right? After 1971. So we started pumping credit. And then when you pump credit, obviously you create what I call the wealth illusion. So that's because in most cases, newly created credit didn't go in productive um, investments. It rather went into um, asset class returns. So let's say real estate is the typical example where if you extend more and more mortgages at cheaper and cheaper mortgage rates, then obviously the appetite to buy houses goes up at a higher price also, this wealth effect starts because the guy who bought a house at $100,000 with a 10% mortgage rate and can now five years later sell it at $300,000 effectively because mortgage rates have dropped, which has made new credit accessible at cheaper rates. Even if wages haven't gone up that much, the new guy who can borrow now at 7% rather than 10% can all of a sudden afford a more expensive house. The first guy who bought it at 100000 now feels rich because he can sell the new house at a higher price. It's literally a a self-fulfilling mechanism, basically. But it works because consumption, the balance sheet effect of feeling that the market value of your personal balance sheet has gone up because your liabilities are, as we discussed, let's say fixed. And the, the cost of these liabilities is fixed and known. But on the asset side, because of the leverage that there is in this process of credit creation and mortgages, makes your house prices go up more than offset the cost of your liabilities, well, you feel that you're rich, right? You feel Mm -hmm. that you're wealthy. And when you are wealthy, your spending habits tend to change. And so politicians understood that this, actually this mechanism works and they used it by and large. And I'm about to push out an article about China. And also there, there is no secret, to be honest, they did exactly the same. they had a productivity boost when they entered the WTO in, in 2000. So they basically reduced external trade barriers. They became more productive as a country, uh, but they had a huge demographic boost, massive between the, the 70s and 2000, which brought new labor force, brought new productivity. But then in 2010, 2011, this effect plateaued. So what they did is they created the largest amount of credit ever created in human history in the shortest amount of time. And also there it went in real estate prices, it went in other, um, let's say, uh, relatively unproductive investments, which then at some points leads to instability, 
to answer your question, right? So as we have seen the Evergrande story, for example, yeah, at some oh, point, exactly. either politicians outright go and say, whoa, 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 that's too much. We need to slow it down. But slowing down means deleveraging. And deleveraging is always a painful process because it's just the reverse of what I just described. Right. Instead of creating new assets for the private sector, you destroy actively net worth in the private sector. That's what China has been doing because they have this different approach, let's say, let's call it like that, uh, very centralized where they can simply say, okay, this is what we're going to do now, right? Because there are not so many political repercussions, short-term interactions, but the Western society can't really afford it. Who's going to be the guy who says, all right, so we've got this, you know, private plus public debt to GDP in Europe and in the US at 300%. I would say that's maybe a bit too much. We need to delever. I mean, which politician is going to do that <laughs> in, in Western Europe, in Western, in the Western world? Nobody, because nobody is going to be reelected when it basically reduces the net worth of the private sector. That's what you're, you're trying to do. And so we end up in this kick the can down the road environment where as the long-term drivers of economic growth are pretty poor, I mean, the demographic trend in, in Europe are really bad. And in the US are bad-ish. They are offset by net immigration, which is okay in the US. But overall, we're talking about labor force growth of 0.5% a year over the next decade, 0.5% a year. It's not much. Productivity is there. So people always confuse the rate of change. I'm not saying that we're becoming less productive. I'm saying we're becoming more productive year by year. But the rate of change of this productivity increases as also more or less plateaued around 1%. So the US is supposed to grow on a potential growth rate at about 1.5% a year. Is that palatable? Eh, maybe. Well, if we lever up a bit more, then we're going to grow more, right? We're just going to toss some credit to the private sector and we're going to grow more. This is just a kick the can down the road process that leads to increased leverage for relatively unproductive purposes for which you need to keep real interest rates very low Otherwise, you can't service this mountain of liabilities. And, and you know, it, it becomes just a very um, yeah, vicious circle, to be honest, which is very difficult to get away from. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's pretty fascinating to me uh, how it just comes for full circle or how it you know, dates back to uh, the baby boomers and just all that. And, and, and I want to ask you too, uh, Alf, when, when trying to develop... Um, you know, whether it's like a, a trade for a thesis or an understanding of the, the global narrative, like how do you draw a balance from, you know, maybe drawing off of historical references or how things were um, happened previously to like now we're in like a new environment and keeping like a creative, like open mind. Is that, um, yeah, I guess, is that a tough balance or right? Because like you can't, because things are not always going to be the same, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I also wrote another article on the Macro Compass, which is, which is called The 2020s are neither the 1970s nor the 1940s. Mm -hmm. And why do I have to write this article? Because it is pretty natural, and I do it myself too, to, find, to try and find historical references for a certain macroeconomic period. Because humans are habit uh, beings. We really are habitudinary. We, we want to sort of have a reference, um, a benchmark to compare ourselves to. So we will always look in the past and try to find the period which cross-references current periods to give us a roadmap, basically. So I tend to do that. Sometimes I have to admit, uh, I always remind myself that um, history, uh, well, let's say rhymes, doesn't exactly repeat one-on-one. -on -one. And so this period ahead of us cannot be compared to the 1970s because of what we just discussed. Demographic trends are completely different. The 1970s was a highly industrial intensive decade. And today, let's be honest, it's all but an industrial intensive economy. It's a low cost of capital economy. It's a low entry barrier economy. It's a, labor unions are much less important when it comes to wage bargaining power from, from uh, the labor force. Um, the US, a US company, Ray, needs today one-tenth of the employees you needed in the 70s to generate the same one million of sales. Hmm. So just want to say it again, one-tenth of the Crazy. people who needed in the 70s. So obviously, the, the, you know, the labor, the wage bargaining power is completely different. The structure of the economy is completely different. Digitalization is all over the place. 
sorry, but it, this is not a good reference period. Although now we are witnessing some energy prices, you know, spiraling up, which might remind us of the 1970s. But you know, it's always dangerous to draw uh, parallels. And the same with the 1940s, where we had this period where effectively the Federal Reserve went with a yield curve control sort of approach uh, or a hybrid approach, where they literally said, look, we need to finance war here. So <laughs> we are going to basically keep interest rate, nominal interest rates fixed, and we're going to just you know, buy as many bonds as needed or signal to the private sector that we're going to buy as many bonds as needed to cap nominal interest rates here while inflation just goes up and down, whatever. Because people tend to look at periods only when inflation went up year on year in the 40s, but it also went down pretty quickly over a few years and then up again, et cetera, et cetera, depending on the, the, the war cycle we, went, we were in, basically, throughout the 40s. And so uh, also that period, again, because of different dynamics, cannot be fully compared to the 2020s. So it's it's relevant to look at previous periods in the past to try and understand how policymakers will react, how asset classes correlate to each other and why. That's another common mistake to just look at two lines on a chart that go together, but ask always yourself why, what is the macro reasons these two asset classes should be correlated from a very core perspective. So it's important to look at the past, but always try to contextualize it with today's big picture. What's today's demographic trends? What's today's productivity trends? What's today a constellation of incentive schemes from policymakers? Is it the same from the 1940s and the 1970s? It can hardly be exactly the same. So good to use a reference, but always try to contextualize it if you can. Yep, absolutely. All right, just a few more quick questions, Alf, and I'll get you going on your way. Uh, when you sit down and like do your work um, and you know you got a macro type of take, that you have or a narrative. Do, do, you, do you prefer being with consensus or being contrarian? Do you have any preference? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, yeah. I learned not to have preferences. Like my mentor used to say, money doesn't smell is applicable to trading too, which mm. means I don't care if um, I'm going to make a good risk reward trade on a trade I hate or on a trade I like, I don't care. As long as the setup is there, and as long as I, I can remain systematic in my risk management approach, that's by far the most important thing. Yeah. Position sizing, risk management, which means not only stop losses, but also trailing profit targets should mm. be, I believe, as systematic as possible. Human emotions are extremely difficult to handle, especially when money is involved and ego is involved, as in investing. Beautifully it's said. Of, often involves ego. So what I learned to do, Ray, is to use um, systematic macro inputs that I generate from some you know, automated spreadsheets I have, et cetera, to try and tie them into my uh, big picture discretionary global macro analysis. As we discussed, depends on many factors. Two or three are, are paramount important, there are others. And then look at risk reward, good risk reward expressions of the certain macro thesis with the systematic macro inputs I'm getting. Then I get a short list of, I don't know, five or 10 trades. I have to balance them out in a portfolio. When it comes to sizing those trades onto deciding what should be the first profit target or the first stop loss, there is no discretion at all in my process, absolutely zero. The discretion comes first, but when it, it goes into risk management and taking profits or, or stop losses, there is no discretionary human intervention at all. The reason why I'm religious about that is that I, I learned it the hard way. And if I let myself decide when to stop out, I barely stop out. And I tend to hope the trade is going to reverse back and hope is not a strategy. Mm -hmm. And also I tend to take profits way too early while I've had some trades on that could have run double the profits if I just let them run. So what's the solution to that? Well, then Alf doesn't decide. The system decides what is the stop loss and what is the profit target. And so that's the same answer to your question, do I like to be consensus or against consensus? Doesn't really matter, to be honest. Yeah, doesn't matter. I love it. But that was, I know, JJ, and I know you were loving that too. That was a- Oh, just beautiful. Just yeah. beautifully said. Because yeah. I'm, you know, my whole thing is, you know, don't let your ego write checks you still can't, you know, catch. And um, yeah, and, and, and everybody in the middle of, of the fight, you know, uh, they just lose sense of everything. So having a system 
of of taking profits and it's just yeah it's just beautifully so said what i like what was that alpha M- money has no smell was that the <laughs> M- money doesn't smell and trades don't smell either that's one of my mentor used to say okay and he's right so, so now for instance i've been short uh, the russell 2000 uh, for a couple of months now so i set the trade on actually since the beginning of the year i set the trade on and it's been working very nicely and it hit my first profit target um, and then it went, you know, a bit further and now it's retracing back. I mean, risk is rallying, so it's not working my way anymore, but that's very simple. I have a trailing profit target mechanism. Nice. When it's hit, I ju- I'm just out of the trade. Yeah. And then what? It drops another 20%. I don't care. The trade is over next to next one. So what is my model telling me? Is there a better risk reward expression as my macro underlying thing changed? Yes or no. If no, that trade is gone. Is there another trade I can look at? It, it really, there should be no emotions, I think. Possibly even when assessing your macro thesis using the discretionary overlay and the systematic input, there should be as little emotion as possible. There will be some because everybody's biased to think in a certain way about you know, the underlying uh, structural hypothesis. But from that moment onward, when that assessment is done and the trade is on, there should be no emotions involved, zero, if you can. Yep. Love it. Love it. I'm going to, Alpha, if you don't mind, I'm going to start using that phrase that money doesn't smell and trade, you know, I'm going to start using that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, Alf, Alf. Uh, I guess that last one that I'll get you going here. Um, I I, uh, I would like for you to just maybe just briefly go over like your thesis that you had on the recent, I know you had a uh, Bitcoin short that mm-hmm. I believe you closed. Yeah, it's closed. Uh, recently. Do you mind just, just maybe uh, just going through the thesis you had on that? Yeah, so I treat Bitcoin and actually any digital asset as an asset class. So also there, I don't understand the very emotional debate out there on this is going to be the new global reserve currency of the world. Uh, If you don't mortgage your house to buy Bitcoin, you're an idiot. Basically, that's (laughs) one camp. Then there is the other camp of like, this is a digital tulip bulb Um, mania. This is useless. A blockchain, what are you talking about? Well, that's the other stupid camp, if you ask me as an assessment. I think there are merits in considering uh, the digital asset class space as an asset class. And I'm a macro guy, so I tend to um, try to frame that asset class within the ma- macro context. And there I treat the entire asset class, Ray, as a, let's say, a very high beta um, risk asset, which means, you know, when risk appetite is very high, you tend to see money flowing into the space and vice versa in in a very, very, very basic assessment, but with potentially uh, a low probability, high convex payoff that this becomes more entrenched and more important in the payment system. And that maybe later on, it can play a role in a potential against, again, low probability, but high uh, payoff um, scenario where we have to th- rethink our monetary system. Again, it's low probability, high payoff, but it's it's sort of a call option at the end of the day, if you want to think about that. So that's the way I, I think about the digital asset space. In a period where the Federal Reserve has communicated, I think Powell has been as loud as he can be telling us enemy number one, two, three, four, five is inflation. All the rest is, is almost irrelevant at this stage. He's telling you we can hike rates to almost and according to his own projection, the labor market is going to be as tight as today. So he he says, we go to 3% Fed funds rate and unemployment rate is going to remain 3.5% for two years in a row. So no problems at all, but we really need to bring inflation under control. When he's so committed, let's say, and his, his incentive scheme is so skewed towards tightening to bring inflation down, and at the same time, the economic growth impulse is also coming down since the summer of last year, which again, doesn't mean we're in a recession. It means we are growing with a bit more slowly. Those conditions at the beginning of the year seem to be not macro conditions where Bitcoin or digital assets could thrive because they they do thrive where economic growth is going up and incrementally more and monetary policy is a commodity on top. Here we are reversing both angles. So I started shorting Bitcoin at 46,000 at the beginning of the year. I was targeting 28, 29K. It went to 30 or 31K, something like that. So I didn't even reach my target. And then basically it floated around this 30 to 40K for a while. And my system there, again, it's if the trade, if I have a macro underlying thesis, Ray, 
and I have a trade on. It doesn't even hit my first target. And then it floats around some PNL-ish green, but it doesn't really go anywhere for two and a half months. It's just absorbing risk budget without delivering any returns to me. So I have a time-based stop as well for my theories because I cannot get my risk budget being absorbed by something that it's not being validated when it comes to price action. Right. It's not validating my macro thesis. And so when it went to 43K, I just said, okay, well, it's been three months. It's not moving. So I'm just, I'm just going to get it off the book. Very, you know, I just, it was a time-based stop effectively, mm-hmm. if you wish. Not stop, rather take profit because I shot it at 46 and took some profits at 43 if I, I think. Then it moved higher. Again, it's just time. So that is a variable I cannot control. When is it going to break above 46 or below 46? Mm-hmm. But there is, again, a systematic rule, which is a time-based stop. Time-based stop was it because it was going nowhere. So the trade is out. It wasn't responding to my macro thesis. The price wasn't validating my narrative. That's the other thing. If the market often yeah. will tell you if your narrative is being bought by somebody else or not. It right. doesn't matter how hard you believe in your narrative. It doesn't matter. It's, it, what, what matters is that your narrative is being bought by other market participants. Mm-hmm. And if it's three months, as in my case, where this narrative was somehow bought, but not convincingly, well, if I have a three months um, time horizon, generally speaking, in my trades, and it's not working, then it's not working. Systematically, out. Right. Sticking to the system at that point is now we can't let the uh, the convictions override the system. Exactly. Absolutely. Being a strict trader. All right. Well, that's going to conclude today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review it for us. If you'd like to trade alongside JJ and myself, supportive community of traders, you can join us at microefutures.com. Alf, tell the people where they can find you and anything else you want them to know. Uh, guys, I write a free macro newsletter, which is called The Macro Compass. It's on Substack, but if you Google the Macro Compass, you're going to find it. The full link is themacrocompass.substack.com. I publish once a week uh, macro insights, educational content, investment ideas as well. Um, Feel free to come and subscribe. There is no price to be paid at all. Um, Otherwise, you can also follow me on on Twitter, at MacroAlf is my handle, where I will do, you know, some more... uh, that small, let's say, less uh, elaborated macro content than I can do on the macro compass, but since some macro comp- uh, content and some sourdough bread and pizza recipes from time to time. <laughs> Which I like. I, I saw that. I'm like, I'm going to go back to his Twitter page uh, when it's time <laughs> from a real Italian. I love it. Uh, guys, no, seriously, his, his, his newsletter is great. Um, go Even if you are a short time, uh, time frame trader, like we spoke before, it could help go in there. Go read it. Uh, JJ, parting words. Thank you so much, Alfonso, for coming and sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, you know, most people don't even think about macro until, you know, everything comes apart, then they start, you know, talking macro. So it's really good. Even though, you know, we're short-term day traders and things like that, we should know uh, how the world works around us. And uh, very, very happy that you came by. Uh, thank you, JJ. It's thank a you pleasure. So much. It's a pleasure to hear these words. And thanks, Ray, as well, for this nice interview. Yes, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And so for Alf, I am Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of Howe Street. Make sure you're using stops.